Hi there, I'm Anne-Marie McQueen, editor of Live Healthy, and this is the Live Healthy podcast. Each week we interview health and wellness leaders and talk about all the things that are good for you, which you can also read about in our online magazine, the only one of its kind for men and women in the UAE. And now, here's this week's guest. Today on the LiveHealthy.ae podcast, we have Matt Tugood and Kim Thompson, um, co-owners of Bra Coffee Company, sitting drinking a really nice Kemet. Kemet? Yep, Kemet. Mm, that looks delicious. Um, how much coffee do you do? Welcome. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Welcome to you. <laughs> um, first of all, how much coffee do you drink? I don't drink as much as Matt, and I very embarrassingly start my day with a cup of tea. So I feel like I have to sort of commando roll through the roastery to make my cup of tea. But then I move to coffee. Matt drinks a lot more. I drink probably slightly. I'm two double espressos. That's not really counted as drinking coffee because that's just my wake up. And two double espressos a week up. That's, yeah, that's the starting. In fact, the guys now know not really to talk to me too much before I've had those down. Um, but I, I grab them both at the same time. It's also a way that I check in with how the coffee's going that day, right. um, uh, which is actually really important. Uh, then, then probably four cups, I suppose, or maybe five during the day. So we're talking like 12 shots. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, brewed coffee's a lot more water. It's, a, it's not as strong. Yeah. It's a lot easier to drink, so you can drink a lot more of that. I also have some theories as well about um, uh, it's very similar to other uh, products that are, say, made for grapes, um, that the higher the quality, the best, the better the actual result. So the effect is not about caffeine. You tend to find that a higher quality coffee has a best caffeine count, okay. um, and therefore you're not taking too much. And your body builds up quite a quick resistance to large amounts of caffeine. Okay, so you didn't always drink. Uh, no, actually, I used to drink more. Oh. So in New Zealand, it's, you know, the, the way that you would go to a cafe is very, very different. I used to work in, in corporate New Zealand, working for Telecom New Zealand, and it was not unusual to go downstairs to the cafe in our building four or five times a day, and you grab an espresso down there, and that's a very, very common thing. So you go down, spend literally five minutes, ten minutes, and then back up to your desk. So I think it's, you know, the actual volume of coffee that's drunk in the Middle East is much less than places like Germany, New Zealand, Australia. Now that's interesting because when you drive around, walk around the city, mm-hmm. Dubai or Abu Dhabi, mm-hmm. I just see people constantly drinking coffee and I think this must be the coffee capital of the world. And I read that it's about 6 million cups a day mm-hmm. of coffee, but you're saying that's not that I, Look, I think it, I, I've heard that figure and that was a few years ago. So I think it may be more than that. The other thing that's really interesting is that the takeaway market here in the last couple of years has gone through the roof, right? Possibly because car parking can sometimes be difficult and we tend to be in these, you know, in the UAE, we tend to be happy to go to a destination to pick up what we're doing. We're not, we're not only going to the place that's close to our work or something like that. So the drive-in, the drive-through, the takeaway is really, really, really popular these days. But also this number of places, I moved here 13 years ago and you couldn't really, I, I was, that was one of the shockers was mm-hmm. I just couldn't drive by and get a coffee. That's why I met Kim because 13 years, you know, 13 mm-hmm. years ago there was, you couldn't get a decent cup of coffee. You, you, it was, it was impossible. We, we were literally the first specialty roastery to set up in the Middle East. And where were you located? We started with a, um, a purpose-built warehouse down in Dubai Investment Park but that's before all the road works improved it used to take forever to get there it was the wrong location for us because when you walk through our place now and you see the people that are all down there drinking coffee in the cafe you need that because that's your showroom um, and we, when we moved from Dubai Investment Park we moved down to a little space in the garden centre we had a container which was our office a 40 foot container that we um, customised we this, bring, is raw. this, is this was raw, yeah. yeah. And then we were bringing in pallets of coffee rather than containers of coffee like we are now. 
Okay, so you guys, I always wondered if you were married. Yeah. A lot of people <laughs> think that. I'm yeah, sure. yeah. my work husband. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So how did you meet? How did you form this business? We were we'd heard about these domestic espresso machines called Rockets, Rocket Espresso, and it was part owned. It's from Italy. They're amazing, and one of the owners was a New Zealander who had moved up there, and so they'd had a long. Uh, they had a really strong market presence in New Zealand. So Matt had a machine. And he brought it up here and he needed it serviced. And then it needed to be reserviced. So we got to know each other over this machine that wasn't working so well. And about that time, I realized that I didn't, I should never have thought that I could even do this because there was such a huge learning curve with regard to roasting and then also making coffee that I met a woman who had come down to do some barista training and we organised an afternoon and evening barista training and we invited Matt and were there other people that were also new customers that I think no, one of was, my daughters. Gabrielle and, and yeah, yeah, just, yeah. Yeah, it was. So it was, we actually started learning a lot of the things at the same time. And he, he was also doing an online course at university and he asked if he could do a case study on raw. And... Yeah, the rest is history. So your original cafe was Raw Coffee? Raw Coffee Company so is the name of the yeah. business that okay. we started, yeah. Okay. And um, basically what I think a lot of people don't know is that there's coffee and then there's coffee. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so maybe walk us through that. So I, of course, you know, knew so much about coffee when I started and I came and started to tell Kim, you know, how she should be changing her rose profiles and everything. Um. It is quite amusing to think back what we were doing back then. Um, uh, you know, we've been, we're in isolation too. We were in isolation. Yeah, that was that was the biggest challenge. And, and and people like Joey, who has become one of our very very close friends, she uh, she owns the Vienna School of Coffee. It's very very famous. She's a she's written six or seven books on coffee. She's an incredibly talented coffee person. For her to give us her time to start us to understand how complex it is it is you know now i think about the stuff that we didn't know back then i don't even know how we even made the beans come no, out I know. i'm know? the same um you know i remember a customer would ring up and say there's something wrong with this batch of coffee and we'd go into a panic mode on what we'd done wrong and everything like that now we know we weren't doing anything wrong it's just that there is so many things even after you've roasted that coffee to actually get it into the cup tasting correctly is a complicated process so um we say it was a mixture of brave brave being brave and also being incredibly naive that allowed us to even think we could start it you're a lot of entrepreneurs do that actually yeah well and it's true because i think the first three years just running around in circles we had environmental impact studies we had to find from somewhere to get permission to have the roaster um because no one was doing this no and no one knew about water you know, the quality of water or the importance of water filtration and to find the right partners to source the, the commercial equipment from. And then obviously it was before it was trendy because literally we were the first. And then there were no people that they'd fly in to get a job in the UAE, but they never wanted to work in coffee. So you were taking someone that had never grown up drinking coffee, never would pay 15 dirhams to drink a cup and then you're trying to teach them how to not only respect the product but focus and really we, we wanted to play in that niche at the top so just to break it down for people let's start with the sourcing mm -hmm. the, the ethical moral mm -hmm. aspect mm -hmm. of where you get your Based part of our job it's right. the highlight of the industry a lot of people don't understand that so mm -hmm. just can you walk me through but I think you also sorry I think you also said at the beginning that there's coffee and there's coffee yeah yeah so there's specialty coffee and then there's commodity coffee. And I think we, when we started, we were lucky. We decided to, to play in that niche at the top. But our three core pillars then were organic, um, ethical, and local. local. Yeah. So we've kept local because local means rash. We've kept ethical because ethical is about, I think, the business with the people. So it's the farmers, it's the people that work for you, it's the customer's experience. 
And then we moved from organic to direct because as we started traveling every year, we go to Origin, but obviously the last, this year, we've missed all of our beautiful trips. But going to the farms and the cooperatives that we buy the coffee from means that we can check to make sure the health of the soil and the water and the, the women and the children, and we'll know even before we get the green bean samples when there's going to be a good partner to work with. Whereas an organic certification, that farmer has to spend hundreds of dollars each year and that doesn't transfer across to a better price for him or, or them or her. It's, it, it's broken, it doesn't work. And they don't have the money to, to use pesticides and chemicals. If they're lucky, they might be able to use trace minerals in the soil. So you're saying it's basically organic? It is organic anyway. 90... Five percent of coffee globally is farmed organically, due to the fact that the, the the producers are not able to afford to put chemicals into the soil. All the specialty coffee comes from pretty what we would classify as yeah. third world countries. I mean, we could get so deep just talking mm. about this subject. Yeah. One of our most beautiful—he's a beautiful man, Miguel in, in, um, in Colombia—taught us so much our last trip to Colombia. So one of the things that they're doing is they're expanding their business. So they're going to different plots of land and they are replanting coffee, which is unusual because in Colombia, coffee in the last few years has been taken out of the ground because it, doesn't, it wasn't producing. It was costing more to produce than it was providing. So one of the things that he's developed is a way to get rid of the guanophosphate. Right? So Roundup, guanophosphate is... Um, insidiously through all the producing farmlands that we that we know and we're consuming. It's already in the ground. It's in the ground because Monsanto has a global way of trying to poison us slowly to death. And so when the very first thing that he does when he gets into a new farming state, so a lot of the times what we're doing is creating a model that works financially for farmers and producers then that farmer could have been farming coffee for 20 years. But they're, they're using the same methodology that their grandparents did, which is to grow the coffee, pick it quickly. They don't really understand the genotypes. They don't understand about soil. They just know how to produce a coffee tree. Then they take that cherry, they sell it on the local market. That's great. because More it like a cash crop. Yeah, more like cash crop, yeah. So what the, the guys are working with is they'll come in and by adding lime directly to the soil, they actually dropped the glyphosate. Just actually, can I just go back though? The glyphosate yeah. is in the soil from previous. From previous, mm. yeah, okay. yeah. So, so basically, if they've been not running, coffee crops, not coffee crops, but they may have been running soy, or they may have around their coffee crops, they may have uh, used it to get rid of the weeds. Yeah, and this is a global global company, yep. Monsanto, yep. that is yep. in everywhere. Yeah, like <laughs> I just I was just up in Vietnam last year and just watching, you know, just watching this fog go down a valley. It, it, you know, because the soy is genetically modified, the rice is genetically modified, so it doesn't get affected by the glyphosate. But the the thing that what these these guys are doing, you know, and now I see it everywhere because I've I've been woken up to it. But the you know to use the lime to re remove it and then go and plant um, weeds to actually feed it and to protect the soil and to keep the moisture content high. So a lot of the stuff that we are enabling in the way that we purchase is an education back to the farmer who's been farming that product forever. And then it's then it, we go into, okay, we can pay more if you grow the coffee, this variety of coffee. So they'll slowly swap, swap out the coffees. So we've, it's wonderful now that, that the team that we work with can give us actual real live reports. And over the last three years, we have paid 2.66 times more than that same farmer was getting for the same product because we've helped them improve their product. But now what we're doing is we can, we can market that product at a much higher price. We can pay them a much fairer and higher price. So now it's actually, it's a business. It's not just a survival. It's not just what can we get today. And that's happening also in uh, Ethiopia and Rwanda and Burundi and places where... Myanmar. In Myanmar, particularly where there are younger farmers that are open to learning new techniques. Right. The, old, the older farmers, 
are harder. You know, you, if you can tell them that they can earn nearly three times more, they'll listen, but they don't have a lot of trust because there's been a lot of, you know, big NGOs that have been into a lot of these areas trying to help um, farmers, but they haven't, like they might try and teach them how to prune a tree or something like that or sometimes they'll stump it and then they, it grows back again because the tree can grow for a long time. But it's um, it's been a, a long, slow, even Yemen actually, a long, slow journey. But we are now partnering with a lot of younger farmers that knew and were happy to take a risk, also happy to remove trees and plant new ones because like grapes or anything, it takes four years before they get a, a reasonable crop. So that's four years they don't have that income. Have you seen that documentary? Yes. It's so it's, 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 yeah, it's wonderful. But I guess any farmer who's done things a certain way, mm-hmm. you know, you, you saw those farmers mm-hmm. in that documentary mm-hmm. who, who are doing it and it's working. Yep. You, to shift your well, Something we were really fearful of, particularly uh, in Ethiopia actually, would be that we'd go and see um, these amazing, and, and we love the coffee from there. We, we would see the farmers and they're not even really making a sustainable livelihood and then their children they don't want to grow up to be farmers and then you're only going to be left being able to buy coffee from these big guys that the quality of the product is so inferior it's not specialty yes i mean but there's also so the, the specialty coffee and commodity or commercial coffee grows on the same tree often so it's the way that it's processed the way that it's picked that's why it's sorted and the way that it's then treated so there's a, it does come down to the eventual taste of it, but it's mainly how it's processed and treated. We have um, uh, some wonderful coffees that are grown in small pockets surrounded by massive commercial crops of coffee. And the relationship that we've got, because often it will be a slight difference of angle on the hill, gets more sun, so you get higher sugar content in the fruit, which means that it's a higher quality product. And then that's handled in a way that maintains that quality all the way through to us. And the guys in the industry today are so clever. They are looking at other industries, especially in places like Colombia, where coffee's the 28th commodity traded from Colombia, where most people associate Colombia with two things, starting with C. Um, uh, so, you know, for us, that was mind-blowing. Like, it's 28th. Rice. I mean, they, they grow more rice in Colombia than they do anywhere else in the world. You know, so... So fertile and green. It's just yeah, avocados the size of rugby balls. You know? Okay, so commodity coffee. The coffee, a lot you grab them all. Mm-hmm. I mean, what, what do people need to know about that? Okay, there's one little okay. trick, right? You know how people have often associated coffee with helping your body move? Yes. Right. Be, your body's function, function as it should. Okay. What? Regularity. Regularity. Regularity in our body. <laughs> now, the reason that coffee often does that is because the fruit or the, the, the actual seed that's used is unripe. So an unripe fruit will cause you to uh, be more regular. Yes, okay. um, and so often the, the actual seeds that are used in, in lower grade and commercial coffees are unripe fruit. They look the same. You can't tell going through the process. You can a little bit at the roasting process. You can tell when you're processing it if you know what you're doing. But generally, the, the, the lower quality coffees, they are what strip picked. So they just grab all the fruit all at once off the tree and then just process it. So especially the freeze-dried coffees, um, that's why you know they, are, they don't taste very good because the fruit isn't ripe. Um, it's a very good question, though, because it's a very murky gray area. So you get a lot of people buying, it's usually attached to the price of the green bean because that's, that's, we get sent a green bean sample um, pre-shipment that we, from a farmer that we've selected to work with. And each season, it grow, the coffee grows once one time per year and they'll send us the fresh sample, we, a number of, a range of different beans. And we'll do a cupping, we'll roast and cut the coffees and then there will be a price attached to that coffee and always the better tasting coffees are more expensive. So here at the moment, the market is maturing, but there's definitely a lot of smoke and mirrors and a lot of the bigger companies have adopted, the uh, bigger franchises have adopted the language of specialty coffee, but they don't have the ingredient of specialty 
coffee. And that, that's very hard to actually measure at the moment, and it's a very big frustration for us. But I think you should be able to drink a, a black coffee with adding no milk, no sugar, and it shouldn't be bitter, it shouldn't taste burnt, it should have flavours of... Um, it should be sweet. Yeah, it should be sweet and balanced. It should, it should have a really long finish that's amazing. And then depending on which country it's from and which variety it is, it might taste like um, citrus or it might taste like nuts or chocolate. And those flavours should be present without adding anything to the coffee. And you shouldn't think you're rushed to the heart. No. <laughs> no, exactly. Right. Exactly. But I think there's a lot of new developments coming out because it's a the specialty market is growing very fast around the world and it has in many leading countries. Uh, you look in London and Melbourne and San Francisco and places, specialty coffee is booming. Like I think in the States it's something like forty five percent growth. Wow. Specialty coffee, not not commodity, normal franchise coffee, but specialty. But when you go into one of those franchises, what do you, when you buy that cup of coffee, because I think people are waking up and becoming more responsible, what, mm-hmm. what are you doing when you buy that cup of coffee as opposed to taking a little bit of time to research where you're coming here mm-hmm. or somewhere else? What, what, are, what are you funding when you do that? Well, you're helping them make money. Yeah. It's not the farmer because yeah. they're not buying the product that is specialty. So you can guarantee there's a broker in the middle. Um, I think direct trade is something that is incredibly important now. It's going to become more and more important because it's traceable. Uh, Things like the old certifications of Rainforest Alliance, Bird Friendly, Organic. I think when you get a business that's been around for a period of time, you understand that that's actually, it was meant to help the farmers, but it, it didn't. So we had a, um, uh, we were buying fair trade certified coffees when we, when we first started uh, through a wonderful organization based in New Zealand yeah. um, called Trade Aid. And coffee was about 25% of their business. So they were, their, their aim um, was to support people with all the products that they could get. And I remember sitting around a campfire at Origin in Ethiopia with the head of their coffee division. And we had a quite a, a long debate that evening about what fair trade actually meant. And their mandate was that they would rather give one cent to a hundred people, where I'd rather give one dollar to one farmer. And so that was where we, we differed because I didn't think that solving, uh, you know, making a tiny little ripple was going to be effective and it would be far better if we concentrated on um, making sure that every single farmer that we could actually help. Because when you go to a lot of these locations, a lot of people don't want to engage and it's and it has to be a relationship. You have to be able to have a conversation. You know, we don't, we're not coffee farmers. I don't, I don't know how to tell you how to make a tree grow healthy. I don't know any of those aspects. I've got some ideas because we get the luxury of talking to a lot of farmers. And so we can say, well, actually, you know, this farmer was doing this. Have you, you know, maybe we can introduce the two of you. And we've had some wonderful situations where we've um, been able to facilitate ladies from Yemen going to Ethiopia. Now, Ethiopia is the, the king of coffee growers. And Yemen uh, has a long way to recover back to where they were. And so to be able to facilitate that, we found things that, you know, are just so, you know, are so important and made such a difference. Like the Yemeni ladies were able to double their production just from learning a couple of very small things in Ethiopia. So Because their agronomy practices are inherited. Mm. So there's no new, it's yeah. inherited knowledge. So we have the direct. Yeah. So fair trade is like kind of an archaic. It is. And at the end of the day, fair trade funds the fair trade organization. It doesn't actually make an impact at the ground. So a good question to ask. How are these teams give this company have a direct? And probably most places won't. Yeah. And, and, and direct trade again has been picked up um, uh, quick, quite quickly by the, the industry. Um, you know, it, it, it's boots on the ground. If you've actually stood in that farm, that's direct trade. You know, if you have gone through a broker based in the UK and you've bought a, a single lot from a single farmer, that's not really direct trade. It is mm. because it's you know it's traceable, um, 
But, you know, for us, you know, during COVID and things like that, half the time we're spending on the phone talking to our producers, you know, and a producer will sit, uh, you know, with a bunch of different farmers because a lot of people don't realize that, you know, in our business, we go through an entire farmer's production in a couple of hours, right? Um, but mostly small holding. Yeah. So I was just going to also say, like the social premiums and the value that puts on, because we, we don't say what they have to spend that money on. So that might be buying chickens. It might be um, bringing uh, electricity into a village. Uh, the social premiums and the strength of the relationship year on year is so good for both them and us because they know they don't have to worry about who's going to buy their expensive, you know, lots of coffee because we've said yes, we we're committing. We can pre-finance some if they because they if they've only got one crop a year, they run out of money. So we can do pre-financing. We can do commitment, and then I think for us, we then become the voice of those farmers because it makes customers feel good if they can see you know some photos and imagery of the people that are growing the coffee they love to drink they feel connected and I think even you know more so at the moment where we're all stuck and you know not traveling and you know I, we just went on a, um, a webinar with we're in Endeavor entrepreneurs and and they've been connecting us a lot more virtually uh, lately and we did one maybe a month ago where they were talking about online buying behavior and it's it's a fact that online is purchasing is here to stay and um, people are spending more time looking at the ingredients that are going into the food products or their moisturizers they're looking for local um, businesses they want to support they're looking for natural ingredients and women particularly are also looking to treat themselves mm. now whether that's you know, it's not going to be stilettos, because, <laughs> but it might be a really comfy pair of like, you know, it's a nice, <laughs> expensive, you know, leisure wear or something okay. like that. And then, you know, we we fit into all of that because we've got no additives in the coffee. It's They can feel good about it. It's ethical. So that was kind of good to see that it made us realize we needed to tidy up our website and, you know, mm-hmm. make it a little bit easier for all the online ordering and payment and everything. But Along with everyone else is realizing that. Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah, we probably were needing to get to it, right? <laughs> we got a lot done in lockdown yeah. and quarantine. Okay. Because, you know, we spend a lot of time focusing on customers. So yeah. without that, we were able to get a huge amount of projects done. How did you process that? I'm just so curious mm. talking to business owners because, you know, I felt like I was in mud when it was happening. Mm. And then I saw all these people just snapping into action. Mm-hmm. How did you how did you deal with it? Well, I'm a little bit of a prepper. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and by prepper That's you, an understatement. By prepper that means you prepare for some sort of doomsday scenario. Yes. Yeah, in the sense that I, I, I did have a friend of mine who does a lot of work uh, with China. Um, I was on a conversation, just having a chat with him um, uh, in January. And he said um, he wasn't going to go to China because it was a problem. Yeah. And he explained that this virus was around. And uh, I said to him, you know, how serious is it? He said, when my suppliers tell me do not come, that's a really strong indication. So we, in January, we had had a couple of conversations with our IT manager. We said, listen, let's make sure everybody has access to the server remotely. Um, we tidied up a whole bunch of stuff. And we basically came up with, as a, the leadership team came up with some plans that if this happened or this happened, what would we do? Um, you know, it was more around making sure that we had the latest contacts of all our staff and all our team. But more importantly, we, we we'd already invested in a website that worked. We you know we had the ability to trade online, um, and yeah, while it was a panic, I think we it took us what four or five days, and then we were you know able to everyone was working virtually. You know we managed to to shut this place down. We made sure the team was safe. We had a, yeah. we have we had a few of our more junior you know um, team that needed we needed to bring in here and give them accommodation so we could make sure they were safe. And we needed to find a logistics partner because suddenly overnight we might do 40 deliveries a day, but they're bulk. Now we were doing, you know, four times that of just 500 grams. So we, everyone was doing deliveries for a period of time until we realized we couldn't manage. That wasn't sustainable for 
too much longer. But you know, it was it was. We kept roasting. Though. We kept roasting, and um, yeah, we we touched our customers and um, you know let them virtually by email or reached out to them just to check they were okay. We also tried to support a lot of cafe owners that we supplied because you know it was tough for us but it was tough for them too because we actually we don't have an investor and we had money in the bank they kind of we knew that there would be a lot of them that were going to be really hurting very fast um so we did a lot of equipment servicing and tried to think of what we could do to help them be ready for when they were able to reopen some never did reopen there were good businesses that never reopened yeah it's interesting in times of uh difficulty you know leopards show their spots so there were some relationships that we uh, severed <laughs> um, and it was very interesting to see the types of businesses that were supportive and the types of businesses that were closed off I, I was I was mentioning the other other day to, to one of our senior team I said you know I I believe that pause that we had in our business there was so many positives that we took out of it we were able to really concentrate on things that we weren't able to pay attention to. Mm -hmm. um, and I, you know, it made our business really, really strong. It cost us a huge amount of money. No, no. It's uh, bad million, millions of dirhams. Um, and we worry about our farmers too because, you know, if you're not, if your supplies dropped by, you know, at one stage over March, April, May, the supply that we were roasting was down by like 8%. And then, you know, we're back up to normal now, but, it's a um, the the way the business percentages are has all changed. Everything's changed, and you know the com committing to them, checking in, and making sure they're okay because they've also had the virus back there in their farming rural communities, and they've got like their all their costs have gone up with logistics and shipping, and you know they've got no manual labour moving around because that's what they do. A lot of the farmers they they move around to pick at the different times to help each other. So there's a lot of challenges. So many things we don't even think of. Plus, you know, floods. We in our Rwanda, the actual community that we were we visited, we were there the year before, and we were supposed to be there in May. They had floods and landslides go through, and 28 farmers lost their lives. You know, houses washed away, and so we're currently, um, along with a whole lot of other roasters around the world, we're trying to support them and we take every cup that you buy of coffee a durham goes where each month we're sending you know a thousand dollars and so is everyone else just to try and help them not even it's just real basics like maybe rebuild but it's actually you know blankets water but, but that's actually a really good way of indicating what the difference is between specialty coffee yeah. and direct trade. So we got on a Zoom call with 40 roasters around the world, and I, you know, I felt quite privileged to be on the Zoom call. These were the top roasteries in the world, mm. and we are all supporting these people. That's At a time of a pandemic when yeah. everyone's yeah. businesses are hurting as well. Yeah. And you, you do notice that the, the, the true uh, specialty coffee companies that are involved in direct trade, you know, we will in times of crisis band together, you know, because we realise how important it is to support these people. And, and these people are our friends, you know, they're, they're part of our family community. They're not just, they're not just a, uh, at the end of a wire transfer, some guy sending us bags of coffee. Um, and that, that often will show you. You know, that, that traceability back to the farm will generally indicate. There's always a challenge because whilst there is a system of giving coffee a score, so we actually score coffee out of 100, the actual taste and the profile of the coffee is the same coffee could have the same score, but they could taste completely different. Mm -hmm. And the, um, the beauty is in the eye of the beholder. So if I like a coffee that is more fruity, and Kim likes a coffee that's more nutty. They could be the same quality, but they're just different. Um, the tea industry uh, is also having the same challenges that they, you know, that there's no international standard. Coffee, we do have an international standard, but that is often, it's not regulated. So somebody can say, I've scored this coffee an 85. Well, you know, Kim and I might taste it and say, well, it's actually not, it's a 78. Hmm. Um, 
but and but you know, luckily there are enough people that we all are calibrated okay. um, uh, that we can we can compare notes. And in fact, it's critical. So if we're if we're contacting a one of our um, producers or farmers, you know, we'll say, listen, this is the profile. This is what we're looking for. This is how much acidity. This is what the body should be like. We're looking for something that has hazelnut notes or we're looking for that type of thing. We don't want something that's got fruit notes. And, you know, we're looking at, you know, the 85, 86 score. And that language helps us to trade across the world, you know, from one side of the world to the other. Um, I'm interested in the roasting process too and when people buy coffee and bring it home. Because I, like, I know I, before I knew about this, I would just buy beans and <laughs> to do mm-hmm. nothing, but what? I think a lot of people did that. Yeah. So you, when you buy coffee from you, you're you're bringing it here, you're roasting it here, mm-hmm. and then it's to be consumed. Depending on the coffee, and this is also a little bit of a, a debate. You want to uh, when you roast the coffee, there's actually a, a very very big chemical change that actually happens in the bean because what you're doing is refining the actual uh, solubles in the bean. So you're actually turning fructose into sugar. Right? So uh, green coffee, if you ground it up, um, it's very, very, very bitter because that refining of the sugars has not happened. Um, but once you break the bonds inside the actual bean and you separate the little tiny membranes in there, then oxygen can now get in. So it's going and to... Moisture. And moisture. And it's going to degrade that flavour because oxidisation degrades flavour over time. So think of it as biting into an apple and that apple slowly turning brown. Well, coffee does the same thing. So there, there is also carbon dioxide, which is produced in the roasting process. And carbon dioxide tends to push the flavors in your mouth away from the receptors that receive those flavors. So as soon as the coffee is roasted, the carbon dioxide level is very high. We want to rest that, let that, that dissipate. And that takes about 10 days. Um, so if you're drinking a coffee like we're drinking now with a Chemex, um, two or three days after the roasting process, there's enough has gone that you can get into it. But like there's some coffees that I prefer to leave for six weeks. Okay. The natural process coffees. So when you, when you pick the cherry off the tree, if you live in a country that has access to water, are you, you would hull the, um, hull the coffee, take the flesh, the skin off, off the beans, you then dry it. That's called a, a, a wet process or a washed coffee. But if you're in an African country or a country where water is a valuable commodity, you can't use it to process the coffee. So you take the whole cherry and you dry it in the sun and then you hull it to get the, the solid um, skin and flesh off the outside. And they're very different flavours. I think the when we first started, I remember the first time we were cupping a natural coffee in Ethiopia and I didn't like it at all. It was... Just tasted over fermented, but looking back, that wasn't a good example of a natural coffee. Um, now we have barista competitions around the world, and and some of the barista competitions they started introducing natural process coffees, and suddenly it became more available because the farmers realised that um, it would be niche, but they could make a lot of money by taking the time to spend a little bit more um, focus on the processing. But yeah, what. We, because we have an espresso bar here at the roastery, we drink our own coffee all the time. So we do a lot of um, sensory quality control analysis, looking at the coffees. And quite honestly, we, we have a lot of people that will come in and always they'll ask for the last roast. They want the freshest, freshest coffee. And that's fine. We can do that. But personally, we have had 13 years to play around with this. And we believe that most of our coffees are good. Um, they peak at about three weeks. But some of the natural processed coffees, they actually peak it at, you know, four weeks to six weeks. So that's something maybe people think is uh, an elevated... And that's okay. Rate, that's fine. Yeah, that's yeah. okay. But we, we supply weekly anyway. So, you know, if we people order online, we tell them not to order a lot, just to order what they need for a week. And right. then they've constantly got that fresh product. Okay. But if I get the beans mm-hmm. and, they're, and then wait till they're ready, they're, mm-hmm. they're, as long as I keep them... Yeah, uh, in an airtight container. That's fine. Yeah. The yeah. problem is roasting it or grinding it all up. That's the that's key. That's the key. But, you know, people buy these bags of ground up coffee. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's done. So let's let's say on average two weeks after roasting is when you want to be drinking that coffee. 
if you grind coffee, it's two minutes. Mm. And, it, and it's really simple. So if you take one bean and then grind it, you're turning the surface area from one factor of one to a factor of a thousand. So you're allowing way more oxygen to oxidize the surface area so it goes stale much, 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 much okay. faster. And, and the temptation to buy a beautiful, sexy espresso machine is immense. But the best thing to buy is a grinder. And that can be a hand grinder. It doesn't have to be an expensive grinder. But again, like with anything, you get what you pay for because you don't want to crush, you don't use a spice grinder and chop it. It has to be shaved with burrs. And there are some beautiful hand grinders that are not expensive, but that is the single best investment you can make as well as good water. <laughs> and then someone like me who likes espresso, if yep. I was at home, the mm -hmm. best thing is what? One of those stovetop Italian jobbies? Or? That works. Yep, it that does. works. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. If you want an entry level, the, the Bialetti or the mock yeah. pot mm -hmm. is, is a great method of mm -hmm. doing it, but grind it fresh. Grind it fresh. Yeah. Pods. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What's the problem with pods? Um, they, they're good, they they're good for casting, but they're not good for coffee. They're good for casting. Cast. So if you podcast, but oh. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was just slow on the uptake on that. Um, okay, no, just because it's already ground. Okay, so it's already ground. Yeah. Even if you, so there's things called nitrogen flushing, which is literally putting nitrogen gas over there. All that does is push the available oxygen at the time away and tries to create a barrier so more oxygen can't come in. But you've already, you know, in the seconds that it was, the minutes that it's taken to grind it to actually stick it into the pod, it's already started to oxidize. So one, it's it's not fresh. Two, the coffee uh, quantity is, is less than what you should optimally use. Seven grams. Yeah, and they use very high pressure to try and get more flavor out of it. The environmental impact is massive. Right. These those pods are made even if they're made with aluminium, they are still you know the they're made with aluminium, aluminium in your world. Yes, sir. <laughs> 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 um, they're very clever because the cost of the machine at the beginning is very minimal, but you pay actually if you look at the at seven grams and the cost of a pod, you're actually paying double the amount of money that you would be. You could be buying really premium, specialty coffee, and just using a French press or a mock pot or a Chemex hand brewed. You know, but interestingly, still here, even with the because we're really going through a very fast um, acceleration of knowledge and craving for good quality coffee down here. That's a hundred percent. But still, eighty percent of people are drinking their coffee with milk. Mm. So, so drinking your coffee with milk is that's fine. fine. You should drink your coffee any way you okay. like it. But it's uh, you know, if you're if you're having your coffee with milk here, you've got to look at the quality of the milk. It has less protein, you know, than we're used to back in New Zealand. And it also you're looking at a blend rather than a single origin. Whereas if you're making a mocha pot at home, you can experiment with single origins and have lots of different flavors. But if you're having a coffee with milk, you want to have a blend that can cope with balance the milk and bring out the acidity and I noticed you're only having oat milk here. Well, for the for the non-dairy non yeah. yeah we did a really big study on that um obviously that's as a percentage of sales the non-dairy milk um, customers is increasing um I have a daughter that says she doesn't want to drink baby baby cow breast milk but I think it's we looked at the impact environmentally of the almonds and the bees mm. And it's shocking when you go into it. It's really scary. Well, water usage, the bees. Yeah, it's uh, really, really bad, and we didn't want to. We didn't want to be part of that. And then the soya um, has the hormones that are not ideal either. And the guanophosphate in the industry yep, is that's right. Yeah, even if you, yep. even if you want the hormones, no. sometimes women at a certain age yeah. want those hormones, yeah. but then their chemicals make no. it all just chaos. No. So people, soy milk and soy processed. We actually spent a couple of months doing a really in-depth evaluation and then we looked at coconut milk and all other things as well but we liked the uh, the taste of the coffee with the oat milk is better so a taste is important for us as well and then obviously there's we're choosing oat milks that have no additives either there's nothing bad going into it and we then did a a, a 
plan to share that information with our customers and we were really surprised we thought we would get a lot of resistance or pushback but not everybody like appreciated that we'd taken the time and we instead of having lots of things available we made the decision that we're just going to have that it's kind of nice in this world where there's like so much choice with pizza so mm-hmm. I was like yeah okay mm-hmm. just back to the almond milk and bees I'm mm-hmm. not familiar with I know that it's very environmentally Tough, I've got to be a little bit careful that I that I that I these are numbers that I'm just going to pull out. Yeah. But around about eighty percent of the almonds that are used to make almond milk come from California. Mm-hmm. Right? And one is this: that California has a huge water shortage. But nearly eighty percent of the bees in North America are trucked to the almond farms every year. So there's a number of things that are happening there. The first thing is that you're now putting all the bees for the whole of North America in one place. So if you have things like varroa mite, which has destroyed the bee population in New Zealand, um, the bees are being exposed to each other. So any diseases or anything are transferring between those bees and risking the bee population. They are, they are literally, there is theft of bees. People are stealing bees because um, they have to be taken. And the pollination of almonds is only done by those. Um, it's it, it, it's, it's taking bees it, from New York aren't really meant to be with bees from California. <laughs> <laughs> the danger, the, the importance of bees to humans, the danger of mm. moving them and then putting them into a situation where they could easily wipe out an entire mm. bee population. That would be a great podcast series yeah. to yeah. do on this because yeah. it was you know when you start doing a little bit of investigation because we're looking at you know for what milk non dairy milk we're going to use in our roastery and you go into it a little bit and you learn and it's like horrifying because well, almost everything right you go yeah down the wall yeah and you're like how do yeah. you know well, what yeah. don't you, what don't you know exactly exactly oh my gosh okay I'm a big uh, bulletproof coffee person mm-hmm. probably. No, no, not at all. No. But he, Dave Asprey, who founded mm-hmm. that, he always talks about mold. Mm-hmm. So I just, I, I've never, I've never known mm-hmm. how to find and to know if mm-hmm. the coffee I'm getting. We get asked or... a lot on our social media okay. if we can talk about that. It's very interesting because it, basically Bulletproof Coffee is cold brew coffee. Yeah. And he's patented this name, Bulletproof Coffee. But you can make Bulletproof Coffee anywhere using roasted coffee beans that you soak for a long period of time in like room temperature water and then you filter it and then you get a concentrate. Then you can add your, you know, your coconut fats or your butter or your MCT oils and things. It's amazing. And, and, you know, scientifically it makes a whole lot of sense. You, if you do not process, it's like when you pick any fruit, if you do not process that fruit properly in a timely manner or you don't, look at the airflow and the oxygen as it's drying, you could end up with mold. But again, when you're buying specialty coffee, they're paying so much attention to that part of the process that there is no mold. So the other thing that, you know, it's one of those things that we don't generally talk about, but we, I think we have one of the two meters that are available to determine the water activity in coffee. Now, water activity is being measured through all foods that are farmed and processed around the world. But in coffee, it's been something only for the last maybe four years that it's been proven, five years with bulletproof. So you can determine water activity is how much water can depart or be absorbed by the particular product that you're doing. And there's certain limits. If the, if the water activity is too high, mold will occur. And so we measure that. It's a very, very, very critical part of our business because we can determine whether or not the coffee is going to be stable. Because when we buy it, we might actually have it in storage for up to a year. And if we have the, the moisture originally, so you want to have a nice low moisture content below about 11%, then you want to have a low water activity, which means that if there is mold present, I mean, sourdough is made from bacteria or mold, right? So we've got it in our air all the time, but what we want is have a product that won't absorb those those bacteria to form mold. So bulletproof is is correct, but it's clever. Yeah, it's marketing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's making it seem like it's he's making mm-hmm. it seem that his is mm-hmm. special. It's yeah. just because there is a lot of coffee that do have mold, and generally, what it comes down to the the cost of production 
at, at the farm level, the, the cheaper that they can make to produce coffee that gets to the end product that they can sell, they will. But often that sacrifices the quality, right? And so, and it's also how it's stored, you know, how it's transported, everything like that. Like a lot of the coffees, because we live in the Middle East, a lot of the coffees when we're bringing them in at certain times of year, we bring them in refrigerated containers. So then we don't have peaks of temperature going up and down. And all these things would contribute to things like mould. And then we do tests. We, there's food laboratories that we can, like if we're going to, ex, we now are exporting out of Dubai. And when we do that, we do, um, we send our product to a food laboratory and they do tests and we check for everything. You know, it's, it's something that you have to control and manage and, and look at the, the time that it's going to take for shipping and everything too. Temperature here is a huge challenge. The type of packaging you use, yeah. everything. Um, and then, okay, I'm going to wrap up with sorry, a big question that you probably can't answer, or maybe I'm not excited to hear what you say. You see articles, is coffee good for you? Why coffee's good for you? Why do you need to stop drinking coffee? I, you know, I pay attention to all these health articles, and it's like every week I see one or the other. And it depends who's paid for the test. <laughs> you know, it's full of, and I hear, it's, I've read for years, it's full of antioxidants. Yes, it is. Uh, I, what, what do you think? Obviously. Well, I think when I'm driving along Shakeside Road and I see a bloody Nescafe, oh, I swore, you see a Nescafe ad and it's saying all your daily oxidants. And if the, I want to I want to shoot it because it's been so processed. There's no antioxidants left in that. But yes, coffee does. And it is healthy. It's about moderation for your personal body type. I'll let Matt, Matt will have an answer for this as well. But then it's, you don't add, if you're not adding sugar and syrups and, you know, um, fatty milk to it it's it's the caloric intake that you're looking at there's no calories i think it's proven for um alzheimer's to be quite a good drink to be consuming on a regular basis a deterrent for dementia yes yeah yeah and the protein yeah and then you you have specific studies that they have done on male prostate um, cancers and things like that. So there's definitely a lot of tests that are done, but I think it comes down to using a bit of common sense too and how you drink your, how you eat your food, how you drink your coffee. It's all the same. It's looking at the quality, the additives you're putting in, you know, not having too much sugar, correct water. Yeah. So there's been about, I think there's about 10 or 12 different studies that you know, often the coffee industry relates of positives. There's always going to be negatives and positives. Mm -hmm. I'll give you some stuff that, that I know. Um, this horrible thing on my face at the moment I is to try and, uh, you know, promote awareness for male prostate cancer and also yeah, for Movember and, um, you know, for mental health for, for males in general. I am wearing a whoop strip, right? Whoop strip. Whoop strap. Now, this is a, like a, a Fitbit or anything, and it monitors, monitors your heart rate. I've been wearing this for four months. And every day, it has a journal that you fill out, and it, you, can, you can decide what you want included in that journal. But one of the things that it registers with me is my how many drinks of caffeine I've had and when did I have my last caffeine. Now, it's not thinking about coffee, because it, it asks you, you know, do you read in bed? Are you reading a book or are you using a screen? You know, all these different things. And over the, the months, it actually shows you by measuring two things. One, it's measuring your resting heart rate, and then it's measuring your, the, the space between your uh, uh, heartbeats, so what the distance is. It's really interesting because sometimes at the weekend, for example, I might not have caffeine for two or three days. My, um, yeah, well, it, you know, I, or I might only have one. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I've actually, over these last four months, it's actually come up on charts saying the days where I have six cups of coffee versus when we've been doing a testing or something, I've had eight or ten. Um, eight or ten cups of coffee causes my resting heart rate to increase. It's logic, higher caffeine load. But on the days where I don't have coffee, my, um, my, the, the spacing between my systolic and my diastolic heartbeat actually is worse. I'm not as fit. 
So the caffeine can act as an antagonist to actually promote heavier blood flow through the body. Heavier blood flow through the body is actually making, you know, moving more oxygen through your mental body. Alert. So, mental, you know, there's all these things. Um, I, I was talking to a, a friend of mine the other day who um, accidentally took one of our products in the wrong way. He consumed, it's quite a tasty product, he consumed way, way, way too much, like by a factor of about five. And, you know, too much of anything is extremely bad for you. But, you know, it's the same with grape juice in France, you know, two glasses a day, you know, and they say that that actually promotes things in moderation. Um, Keith Littlewood, who's someone you should talk to, um, has done some extensive uh, uh, surveys about caffeine and coffee. He's uh, he's a nutritionist, um, and he spent a lot of time researching natural health and things, and he's added caffeine as part of his regiment because he finds it really important. But what he did identify is, as Kim just briefly mentioned, the water carrier that you use to take your caffeine, because when you drink it, if you're not adding milk, you're you know, 90, over 99% of that actual drink is water. The minerals and things that you're uptaking at the same time are going to be as important as the actual caffeine. Oh, interesting. So the, what water do you use here? Is it filtered? Is it mineral water? Is it- so the, we actually treat our water. Um, so we are, in effect, we take the, the dewell water, which is perfectly potable, fine for drinking and everything like that. But what we do is we make water for coffee. So we, we, we treat it, we take the water back to virtually just H2O, and then we add minerals back in, calcium, magnesium, potassium, back in to get the correct balance, one for health-wise a little bit, but mainly to make the coffee taste as good as it possibly can. Um, and that's, you know, in this region, we have wonderful de- desalination systems, but it doesn't necessarily make the water perfect for coffee. Okay. And if you drink way too much coffee, what's the, what just drink lots of water? How do you, how do you deal with it? Drink way too much coffee. Uh, yeah, for yeah. me, I, I know what you mean, because it Eat. can make you feel, Eat. when we're, when we're judging competitions and you have to drink a lot of coffee, it can make me feel quite unwell so you have to eat food and you have to drink a lot of water yeah. well you know, i could talk to you all day about coffee <laughs> um but thank you so much and would you i mean you're always doing new things is there anything you want to talk about that you've got planned or <laughs> we're actually the water is going to be something that we want to help people with um, I think that, that, that Raw as a company, I, I, I feel one of the things that Kim and I have done extremely well over the last 13 years has been helping people to understand what we go through. So we spend a huge amount of time researching and when we find things that are positive, we want to tell people about it. Water is the next thing. Is you know, really understanding you know, the difference between if you're making a cup of coffee at home I've had this thing for years where I say to someone, if you buy a grinder from us, if you come back and you say that that hasn't made a difference to the taste of your coffee, then I'll take the grinder back, right? Water is the next thing, as as important as a grinder. I think we've got some new samples coming from Yemen soon, which we're really excited about. We always, whenever we get Yemeni coffee, it has to come in in little little batches at the moment because everything's so broken. Mm Um, we have some amazing, really super premium coffees from Colombia that we're re- releasing in a, our first ever gift box, which we're doing for National Day. Um, that's where we're launching. And we have some like little pour over brew sachets that we're launching in mm. January. So we've got a, and we're productizing our cold brew. So we've got quite a few things we're working on that are really exciting. Um, I think the, we're strengthening our relationships with the farmers too because as we grow, we're able to order more and help them too. So we've made a decision to really focus on and talk about direct trade. Okay, so you can feel good about drinking your coffee in Absolutely. all sorts of ways. 100%. Yeah, and virtually you're going to meet a lot of our farmers very soon. Very cool. Yeah, because, uh, you know, we were, uh, we were meant to be taking our first group of people down to, to meet the the farmers in, in, in Rwanda and also to go understand what we do when we go to origin. Um, and uh, unfortunately, we can't do that at the moment. So we're going to virtually do that. That's coming up soon.
Thanks, guys. Thank, Thank you so you. much. Thank you. And that Thank was you. a delicious uh, Good. Yeah, I'll grab a little bag for you to take home. Have you got a mocha pot already at home? I I set up my coffee bean. After this conversation, for sure. That's it for this week. If you liked the podcast, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review. We'll see you next time on the Live Healthy Podcast.